listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for spending some time with us this noon hour. And the house is back. The circus has returned, ladies and gentlemen. Queen's Park, question period, just wrapping up not too long ago. This is the first time the house has sat for months, of course, because Doug Ford really wanted to keep a low profile during the federal election. And now the house is back and there's all kinds of talk about new and improved government and more decorum and less standing ovations. There were a number of standing ovations in the House today. That is not that unusual. It wasn't nearly as bad or hasn't been as bad as it was in the couple of months up to the cabinet shuffle earlier this year in which the chief of staff was replaced. And now we have Jamie Wallace in there. And now, apparently, we're no longer counting how often people stand up and applaud. Thank you very much. So... Have things really changed? Let's begin with question period, shall we? Here is the leader of the opposition, Andrea Horvath, and you tell me, has the tone changed? Welcome back. I want to welcome back the Premier, uh, back to the office. It's great to see him back here at work and to have the uh, opportunity to finally ask him some questions because Ontario families have a lot of concerns about the Ford government's cuts. I'd like to start with our schools. Ooh, boom. Huh? little jab right there off the top. Nice to see you back. Where you been? Missed you. And then we go to the Premier himself, who he can give it just just as well. He gives it right back to her. I want to welcome the Leader of the Opposition back in the House here. And I, I want to yeah, congratulate our to All-Star too. Minister of Education, the way you've been handling this file. All-Stars. Mr. Speaker, our government has invested over $700 million back into the classroom. That's more money than any government in the history of Ontario. This is my favorite TV show, by the way. I mean, some people, you know, like they, they watch The Big Bang Theory, whatever, whatever it is that they watch, that they love. For me, it's question period. It comes complete with laugh track and canned applause from MPPs. It's fantastic. And, of course, all of this gets going this morning with this as the background. I'll play a little audio for you of the ongoing hoopla outside. Here it is. Hit it. Protests. Large premier. In paper mache. Have you seen that? It's going around Queen's Park right now. Giant, huge Doug Ford. Now, here is Chris Buckley of the Ontario Labor Federation. And I wonder what you make of this, especially at the end of what he has to say here. Because apparently, according to union thinking, you don't need a mandate from the people. You don't need to be elected. You just have to be a union. There was a rumor that the Premier was in the witness protection program. I don't know if he was or not. After a five-month break, maybe they've taken a few steps back and had a good look at what they've done since they've been elected. If they choose not to change, we are going to fight them every step of the way. We are going to build the Ontario we want, whether we have the government with us or not. Yeah, we're going to do it with or without a mandate from the people. We'll do it. You know what? Make us the government. We'll just, we'll do it. I don't think that's the way it works. So, and again, the protest today, and I think this is what takes a little bit of ammunition away from the union and away from the center and center left and the NDP, 
is if you constantly protest, if you constantly jump up and down and bring out the big paper mache Doug Ford, you don't help yourself. You got to pick your battles because eventually people get tired. They get tired of listening to it. And just the way that the Ford government discovered that constant disruption and change is going to tire people out and has, and now the government has really changed wholesale in terms of putting some new ministers in with more experience, better performers on the front bench, new chief of staff, new tone, because they realize that people are going to get tired. And if this government wants to be reelected, they're going to have to change the way they do things. And if that is indeed what has happened here, and it looks like out of the gate at least, day one, that's the case. But then doesn't the opposition have to change its strategy as well? And maybe maybe put away the drums for a moment and let people just have a conversation and let's try and get something done. And then we can reassess whether or not we got to bring back out the paper mache Doug Ford. I want to talk about what's going on on our streets today. A very sad, tragic situation. We've had a number of pedestrians uh, hit this morning. Emergency crews were called to the intersection of Eglinton Avenue East and Don Mills around 6.30 this morning. A male was found unconscious when officials arrived. CPR was performed. The man was rushed to hospital with life-threatening head injuries and later died. Now, it appears he was on the east side of Don Mills, crossing the crosswalk from south to north, when he was hit by a northbound SUV making a right turn. Now, the vehicle remained at the scene, and according to Metrolinx, uh, some of their workers, you know, that area is completely under construction. Some of their workers came in, and a flag person was actually trying to direct traffic and had a foot run over. So there was actually another injury there as well. And a lot of this is putting the attention right back on how unsafe our streets are for pedestrians. Shalima Maharaj is a global news reporter and has been working on this story. She's going to join us in just a couple of minutes if we can try and get to her. She's actually following up on what's going on on Don Mills right now. But if you work or live along the Eglinton stretch, you know it has been absolute dystopian chaos for months and months and months because of the crosstown. Now, we, you know, we have to survive construction pain to be able to get transit, and we complain so much in the city, nothing ever gets built, so we have to deal with it. But if you drive through that area, you know intersections like Don Mills and Eglinton, they seem to change every couple of weeks. The lanes are different. Where you can turn is different. It's an enormous it's an enormous intersection. I drive through it every day as I come from Chorus Key, where I work here, where you're listening to me now, and then I head up to Don Mills. That's where the TV studio is for Global. So I know that area. And if you work in that area, if you drive through that area, you know it's a white knuckler at the best of times. If you're a pedestrian, it's also potentially deadly. Going to keep an eye on that situation. Uh, Shilam Maharaj unable to join us right now with an update on what's going on in Don Mills and Eglinton. At least uh, one person killed. Two others have been hit in separate incidents in other part of the city. It is very scary out there for pedestrians, and we can talk all we want about Project Zero. But if you're out on the road, you know that people are pushing it. They push it to get through the yellows. They push it to make a left. 
They make a right quickly without looking. And it appears in this case that's what happened here. It was a right-hand turn. Pedestrian was in the crosswalk, hit and killed. We're going to stay on top of that. We'll have more on that for you coming up on Global News at 5.30 and 6. And, of course, all day long here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I quickly want to talk about my weekend because I think this is so interesting. Do you use Airbnb? You think that's a good thing? I spent the weekend in Prince Edward County. If you don't know where that is, it's not Prince Edward Island. It's a different place altogether. Prince Edward County is a lovely bucolic uh, bit of farmland just south of Belleville. It's absolutely gorgeous, but it's also very, very popular. And it's popular because there's wineries and there's good food and a lot of Toronto hipsters out there. It's kind of like Ossington just, you know, went on vacation. Part of the problem is it is so successful and it is so desirable. And the advent of Airbnb means now that there just is nowhere to live in Prince Edward County. Because anybody who's got a space that they want to rent out is putting it up on Airbnb, knowing that they can make a lot of money renting it out weekend by weekend, day by day, especially through the summer months. I mean, even this weekend, you know, I was in Wellington and restaurants were jammed, jammed. So where do all the people that work at the restaurants and the hotels, where, where do they come from? They all have to drive in from Belleville or Kingston or places considerably farther away because there is no place to live or stay on, on the county at all. All of it has been taken up by Airbnb. And I mention this because it's kind of a microcosm of, of things that is happening, you know, right around the world. Here in Toronto, places like Prince Edward County, any place that is, you know, a successful tourist destination suddenly now finds itself with absolutely no accommodations for workers. And so now you can go to the county and you'll, you know, you'll go into one of these wine tastings. And there's like one person working there and there's, you know, people lined out the door, you know, to sample a Chardonnay. And I won't, this is ridiculous. Why don't you get a couple more people to work in here? Well, because you can't. There's nowhere to live. You can't pay them enough to be able to drive in for what is, you know, not exactly a high wage earning position to be, you know, pouring out Chablis. Though it should be. Welcome back to the program. I'm wondering if you watched any baseball last night. Did you catch any of the World Series? There was a particular moment, and I'm wondering if you can guess here. I'm going to listen to a little bit of audio, and you can hear where the crowd at the stadium in Washington is cheering for veterans. And then the television cameras show someone else, and things change. I'm wondering if you can follow along. That is the crowd's reaction when the announcers announce President Trump and First Lady are in the stand, and suddenly the boo birds come out pretty loudly. This following President Donald Trump announcing on Sunday that the leader of the so-called Islamic State died in an overnight U.S. military operation in Syria. 
And Trump says that has delivered a major blow to the terrorist groups, even as American forces withdraw from the area. And I want to play just a little bit of what was an extraordinary press conference. Obviously, Donald Trump speaks like no other leader, speaks like no other president ever has before. But is this presidential? He died like a dog. He died like a coward. He was whimpering, screaming, and crying. And frankly, I think it's something that should be brought out so that his followers and all of these young kids that want to leave various countries, including the United States, they should see how he died. He didn't die a hero. He died a coward, crying, whimpering, screaming, and bringing three kids with him to die. Certain death. That is President Donald Trump speaking about the U.S. military raid that killed Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the leader of ISIS. Jackson Prosco is our Washington bureau chief and joins me on the line. Obviously, there are so many times, Jackson, we say this, but he died like a dog. Have you ever heard any leader anywhere talk like that? No, Alan. I think it was sort of a, a stark contrast to the way President Obama had come out and announced the death of Osama bin Laden. And in that case, Obama made a very solemn, simple nine-minute address. Yesterday, President Trump spoke for nearly an hour with phraseology like you just played, died like a dog, uh, you know, suggesting that uh, he was a coward, suggesting that he was whimpering and... and uh, crying in his final moments. It was uh, what you would expect, I guess, from Trump, par for the course of the way he delivers his statements, but certainly unusual in the broader context of how presidents typically announce this kind of thing. What has the reaction been from his political foes in Washington? You know, generally speaking, I think they're more upset with the process here. And that is that, uh, again, going back to the, Ob- the uh, uh, bin Laden raid, in that case, President Obama notified members of Congress. There's a small group of members of Congress that deal with matters of intelligence and national security, and they're made up of members of both parties. He had also notified former U.S. President George W. Bush, who, of course, was president when 9-11 took place. And in this case, Trump did not reveal this information to members of Congress, at least not to any Democrats who would normally be entitled to that. It all goes back to the, the personal spat that's taking place here, really over the issue of impeachment, because the Democrats who would be entitled to that information are the ones leading the impeachment inquiry. Does this change the impeachment inquiry in any way? No, I don't think it does in any way. Uh, I think what it does is uh, raise questions about the U.S. strategy inside of Syria. And I say that because apparently, and we're going to find out more information here in about an hour from the Pentagon, but the U.S. had had a sense of Baghdadi's location for quite some time here. But the question is, were they forced to move up the pace of their operation, perhaps take more risks, because the U.S. is now pulling out of northern Syria, out of this territory, and no longer has those eyes and ears on the ground to support a mission? like this. I think that's the real question coming out of all this. What's next then? uh, What's going to play out in Washington today? You said the Pentagon is going to react? Yeah, the Pentagon is going to provide us with more details about how this operation unfolded. What we know right now is that there were roughly 100 U.S. Special Operations Forces that set out from Iraq to carry this out. They uh, flew for about an hour and 10 minutes in eight helicopters. And then we know that Baghdadi was apparently, during this raid, cornered in a dead-end tunnel where he detonated some sort of explosive vest, taking his own life and the life of three of his own children as well. But beyond that, looking for more information about how exactly this unfolded and how the U.S. came to know his location 
information and track him as well. And again, what strikes me is Mr. Trump's, the President Trump's obsession with uh, with Mr. Obama and the previous president, and actually going so far as to say that this was a bigger deal than getting Osama bin Laden. Yeah, I think that really stands out. Uh, Trump has also suggested that he didn't provide information to Democrats because they would have leaked it. Hard to imagine any lawmaker leaking information that would compromise a U.S. information. Uh, Trump today is suggesting that previous presidents should have dealt with Baghdadi, that he should have been dealt with years ago, even though Trump has now been president for more than two and a half years. Uh, on and on and on it goes. It's, uh, it's a very sort of strange setup for what he is, generally speaking, a momentous occasion. The U.S. has captured or killed, I should say, its most wanted terrorist. Jackson Prosco is Washington's bureau chief with Global National. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks, Alan. So the president now has a new argument for pulling troops out of Syria after the death of al-Baghdadi. But experts say the fight against this militant group is far from over. The president says it was the biggest terror leader takedown ever. This is the one that built ISIS and beyond and was looking to rebuild it again. But terror experts like Jenna Jordan say the group doesn't need to be rebuilt. Its ideology lives on despite losing its leader. I definitely don't think that it's likely to bring about uh, the group's demise. It has a kill where you are message, encouraging followers to conduct attacks without taking orders from a central authority. That means U.S. forces will keep hunting key targets. Meantime, Syrian Kurdish forces say they joined American troops in an operation hours after al-Baghdadi's death that killed his right-hand man, the group's spokesman. Sagar Magani at the Pentagon. So what does it mean for the future of ISIS? Many experts are saying this is not like killing Osama bin Laden, that ISIS is a different kind of organization and it is not so reliant on a leader at the top. Stuart Bell is a Global News National online journalist who covers this sort of thing and knows this stuff inside and out. Stuart, thanks for joining me. What's the impact on ISIS and on that movement? Well, I mean, we we shouldn't underplay it. Um, it's it's pretty significant because uh, al Baghdadi was not only the leader of ISIS, but he was the self-appointed caliph of the Islamic State. So he was, uh, in the view of his followers, was a basically um, God-chosen leader of their movement. So to lose him is a big blow because it's very difficult to find. Uh, a replacement for somebody who had developed that kind of um, persona, as false as it may have been. Um, it also, the timing is is interesting in the sense as well that this is at a point where, um, because of the Trump uh, decision in Syria and the Turkish invasion, um, there's a lot of chaos in northeast Syria, and uh, ISIS has been trying to exploit that chaos to try and uh, reconstitute. And so the loss of Baghdadi uh, means that he's not able to now lead that um, attempt to regroup and rebuild ISIS during this, this time. Much of the conventionalism and criticism of the president's move has been that this will allow ISIS to try and reform and regroup. What kind of real strength does ISIS have in northeast Syria? Well, they no longer have uh, any territory, so the Islamic State per se has been decimated. But um, they have continued to stage uh, attacks, guerrilla-style attacks, throughout the uh, 
the region, um, and uh, you know, and there are thousands of prisoners of ISIS, uh, hardcore ISIS members and fighters who are in. Um, I mean, to to call them prisons is not even accurate. They're just buildings that have been that are being used by the Kurdish forces as prisons and camps as well. So there's you know there's a the potential for the regrouping of ISIS is significant, um, given not only the fact that they're in not very secure facilities, but now that whole region has been thrown into conflict, um, increasing the chances of escapes and attempts to free people from those prisons. There has been sectational rivalry between extreme Islamic groups before, and we have seen that. Uh, is it possible that we could see, and I think for a lot of people looking from afar, you know, we, we were fighting one terrorist organization that seems to have been replaced by a different terrorist organization, and I think a lot of people wonder if that's just going to be replaced by a, a new iteration now. Well, I mean, that's how these groups operate in these countries, is they exploit and exacerbate existing sectarian divides. Uh, and that's something ISIS did very well. I mean, uh, Syria was a country, uh, many of the cities uh, beforehand, people lived side by side quite well. Um, they, you know, didn't, it didn't matter if you were a, a Sunni or whatever, um, you know, religion you followed. Um, that has changed drastically under uh, under ISIS, which forced its moral codes on the population violently in many cases. Um, and so, you know, that's that's a big concern. You have um, within the camps, uh, for example, that are housing um, ISIS families, the women. You can see that um, they, you know, this this kind of a system that uh, ISIS set up in which you have um, basically morality police who are going around trying to enforce the very harsh uh, ideology of ISIS. Um, that system exists within even the camp system that's holding um, the ISIS families now. So this is a you know, this is a dangerous long-term risk for that part of the world. Stuart Bell is a Global News National online journalist. Stuart, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you. Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for spending some time this noon hour with us. We are going to take you to Parliament Hill, where more than two dozen young Canadians are now facing a month-long ban from Parliament Hill after staging a climate change protest inside the House of Commons this morning. When the tour of the House took them into the actual House of Commons section, they sat down on the floor, unfurled protest signs printed on yellow yellow cloths, pardon me, and then refused to move. Growing up as a youth today, I've been seeing the climate crisis just get worse and worse and a lot of talk about it but nothing being done, people promising action and buying pipelines, and that's frankly unacceptable. That is one of the protesters this morning, security removing those protesters from the House of Commons with about 15 minutes and then issued a trespassing ticket along with a 30-day ban. Don't, don't come back for 30 days. You and your signs, you can come back next month. Leaders from three of the world's major religions have joined forces against assisted suicide and euthanasia in a declaration issued at the Vatican. 
the declaration backed by leaders of Christianity, Islam, and Judaism states that no health care provider should be, quote, coerced or pressured, unquote, into providing assisted suicide or any form of euthanasia. It should be the case even if the local legal system permits such an act, according to this declaration. The document adds that when death is imminent, despite medical treatments and technologies, quote, it is justified to make the decision to withhold certain forms of medical treatment that would only prolong a precarious life of suffering. So according to religious leaders, they can withhold forms of treatment, but not medical assistance in dying. And just in case you were wondering, what are the rules here in Canada? We, of course, have medical assistance in dying. However, and I'm reading here from the Canada.ca Health Canada site, not all health care providers will be comfortable with medical assistance in dying. The federal practice may be consistent or may not, pardon me, be consistent with a provider's beliefs and values. The federal legislation in Canada does not force any person to provide or help to provide medical assistance in dying. There's a problem with that, though, and that is, in many places, the only health care services in the area are religiously affiliated. Hospitals with religious affiliations. Now, you live in Toronto, you have choices. But if you live in some places in this province, you don't have a choice. Or the nearest non-religious affiliated hospital is hours and hours away. So I understand that we are not going to force physicians and practitioners to do something that would be against their conscience, against their religion, against their beliefs. But we live in a system with a publicly funded healthcare system where the law of the land says that you, as a citizen, should be able to access these end-of-life services. But right now, the reality is, in this country, many people simply cannot because of religion. I have the deepest respect for faith. But stay out of it. There should be separation of church and state here, and the state has decided... The state has ruled that in this country, you should have access to end-of-life services. And no religion should be able to take that away from you. Just as no law should not be able to, to force you to do something that you find unethical and wrong. Hey, smoke them if you got them. And if you got them, they're probably coming in a plain package. Smokers are soon going to see cigarette packs in this country stripped of all logos, all distinctive designs, as federal rules make drab brown. Why is it always got to be brown? The default color for tobacco brands starting next week. 
plain package cigarettes have started popping up on shelves. That says the tobacco industry prepares for Health Canada's regulations that take effect on the 9th of next month. The new rules say all packaging must feature the same brown base color, basic gray text, and minimalist layout. Health experts and advocates say the policy positions Canada at the forefront of a global push to curb the appeal of cigarette brands, particularly among youth, and eliminate packages as pocket-sized promotions for big tobacco. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press. Yeah, except for all of the evidence tells us that young people are not choosing to smoke cigarettes. They're choosing to vape. And you know that in this province last week, we brought in new rules. It'll start in January of next year. That means that you cannot promote vape products in convenience stores and other places. you got to treat it kind of like a tobacco, put it behind the power wall, all the rest of that kind of thing. But still, in terms of advertisements, that's a federal regulation. So you can still drive down the street and see ads for fancy-looking vapes You can still buy bubblegum-flavored vape oil, and that all still exists. And I think maybe at the end of the day, those plain brown packages are not going to make a lick of difference if we don't get on top of this vaping thing. Speaking of your health, what are you thinking to do once you shuffle off this mortal coil and head to the next world? Are you thinking maybe fancy funeral? Grave marker? Well, what if you spend a lot of money on a grave and then something like what's happened in Arizona happens? Authorities there have arrested a man suspected of stealing more than 1,700 brass grave markers and then selling them for profit. The sheriff's office figures that he sold 1,700 of them, but 1,600 more remain missing. These are hockey puck-sized markers. They're worth more than $43,000 when you put them all together. And you know that families of deceased, families who are suffering, were shelling out the cash for these fancy markers. Would you pay for that, considering that it just might get stolen by some guy? And last week, in Vancouver, that city passed a new bylaw that says the city's only cemetery, Mountain View, will now be allowed to bury unrelated individuals in the same plot. The cemetery always has allowed family members to share a gravesite, but now, total stranger, you can be buried with them. The rule allows the cemetery to sell one gravesite to multiple individuals who agree other unrelated people will be buried in the same plot. Multiple bodies would be buried one on top of each other, wrapped in a shroud, separated by a layer of soil. And after a period of time, once the bodies have decomposed, cemetery workers can bury new bodies there. Oh, look, we got more room. And that follows Washington State legalizing a process that turns bodies into human compost. And that is inspiring other jurisdictions to ask for permission to do precisely the same thing, including here in Canada. The technique's cheaper, more eco-friendly, and potentially more nourishing for plants because the process involves sealing a body inside a canister with wood chips, alfalfa, and straw, then waiting 30 days until the contents have decomposed into two wheelbarrows worth of viable fertilizer. Family members can then take the fertilizer and use it in a private garden if they wish. Wow, the tomatoes this year are awesome! Now, would you do that? Josh Elliott is a national online journalist with Global News, and he joins me in studio. Hey, Josh. Hey. 
You've written about this, about all the different kinds of alternative burials out there. What strikes you? Well, really, it all comes down to we're running out of space and continuing to do what we've always done takes up too much space. You know, you're spending tens of thousands of dollars on a plot of dirt that you won't really realize what's going on once you're dead. So people are looking for other ways to save money and they also want to be more green. So whether it's just going in the ground without any formaldehyde or any preservatives and just decomposing the natural way or accelerating things with this green burial uh, approach and, and turning yourself into compost in 30 days. People just want another greener, hopefully cheaper approach to this whole thing than just going in the ground. Now, when you looked at this, is there a generational divide on this in terms of attitudes? Well, I mean, when you're young, you probably aren't thinking about it the same way. But as people are getting on, you know, you've got the baby boomer, boomer generation, they have to start thinking about it. And they might want to do things a little differently than everyone else has done in the past. So, you know, it's a bit of that generation, but it's also this this eco-friendly uh, trend that we're seeing as well spreads to everything, and that includes green burials. What are the jurisdictions, or rather, what are the laws in Canada? There seems to be a real patchwork depending where you are, and I just mentioned this Vancouver situation where this one cemetery now has permission to actually bury strangers, one on top of each other, but it seems like it's a patchwork from each municipality across this country. Yeah, it's a real scattershot. You can't pick one law and apply it to everybody. Uh, what we do know is that this recompose project where you can turn yourself into fertilizer in 30 days, not legal here yet. They want it, but it's not there yet. Uh, Washington State just did it. But to get it in Canada, it's not going to be something that happens at the federal level. You have to go at the provincial level or the municipal level. It's a zoning thing. It's, it's so complicated, and you need people pushing it to get it to that place. And here's the thing that we don't really like to talk about all that much for a whole lot of reasons. Yeah, it's just uncomfortable. I mean, you want to focus on your life, not what's going to happen after, usually, especially when you're not going to know what's happening, depending on your beliefs. It always strikes me, I live in the beaches, and there's a couple of really beautiful um, cemeteries right in the beach. Beautiful, and but very highly desirable locations where, you know, you could imagine somebody wants to put a condo there, um, and we have a lack of housing, and I don't mean to be flippant about it, but, you know, should the dead have priority over the living? It's a good question, and, you know, we're not the only ones dealing with this. Over in China and Hong Kong, they're really running out of space, and so they're trying to come up with other ways, and, you know, cremation is another way of doing it. You can put yourself into an urn, essentially, and sit on the mantelpiece or be scattered somewhere, uh, and there are rules around that where that can happen, too. Some places don't let you scatter. In nature, it has to be private, but there's such a, a broad range of things you can do beyond going in the ground, and as it, the price goes up, Maybe it's time to start thinking about that. What do you know about pricing in terms of like conventional as opposed to doing one of these new green things? Like, And as you say, that some of this stuff's not available to us. Well, this recomposed thing where you turn into mulch in 30 days is still experimental. You know, you need the space to do that. It's probably, they don't have a price tag on it yet, but it will probably be a little higher. Uh, but if we're talking about uh, cremation, much cheaper than just going in the ground uh, with a coffin. And you're going to be looking at a few tens of thousands of dollars for a traditional coffin burial, but you can knock a lot off that price if you're just cremated because you don't need to buy the land. You don't need to uh, buy the coffin. There's often a concrete vault that goes around it too. That, that, that adds up. 
I, I just wonder where the push is going to come from on this sort of thing, because you're going to need some activism. You're going to need some somebody to go to City Hall or wherever the decision makers are and say, we need to make a change. And who is pushing for it and who will advocate for this change to happen? So it does seem to be the baby boomer generation at this point as they look ahead to that next phase of end of life. Uh, and it happens, it seems to be happening more on the West Coast as well, uh, where you know, green initiatives are more popular. So it looks like the push is starting over there, but there are people all across the country who are interested in this. And I think it's only a matter of time until people get more comfortable with this and we're trying out different approaches to burial. So I think it's going to come. It's just a matter of time. Josh Elliott is a national online journalist with globalnews.ca, and you can read his story about human composting. It is online now. Josh, always great to have you on the program. Thank you so much. Thanks, Alan. Hey, can I get a judgy vegan up in the house here? Can I get one of my judgy vegans? I, get, I, I keep vegans nearby. Uh, how do you? What did you do now? Well, no, I just want to know, do you have any opposition to uh, being composted? Of course not. I'd love to be composted. You would like to be composted. Why would that be? Yeah. Why would you have opposition to that? Well, yeah. I don't know. You're just super judgy vegans. And well, that's I keep, true. And that's true. I'm just assuming. I just keep vegans nearby in case I get, you know, too big-headed. This one I, I won't judge you for. You won't judge yeah. me no. for this one. No, I think being... Yeah. No, it's a good idea. It's a good idea. Yeah. It's got the vegan stamp of approval, folks. I mean, there I think it'd be worse to be mummified. Right. Why? Mm-hmm. Why? Yeah. W- what if I'm? What if I asked to be composted with... Um, you know, I don't like a a chicken or some kind of meats. Is it already dead? Because if you're if you want to, you know, you have like a, a pet chicken super close to you want to be buried with your chicken. No. Hey, no, no, no judgment. No judgment. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you, vegans. Thank you, judgy vegans. Do we have time to ask about Pluto? I think we want to ask about Pluto. Should it be a planet? Remember, it was taken out of the planets, and now Pluto has a new ally. NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine sounds a little like Sheldon Cooper addressing Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson when talking about Pluto. I liked Pluto. (laughs) Ergo, I do not like you. deGrasse Tyson didn't do that, of course. Pluto. That was a vote of the International Astronomical Union. That was the group in 2006 that said Pluto didn't meet planet status because it orbits the sun, not on its own, but with a group of other small, so-called dwarf planets on the very outer edge of the solar system. Bridenstine said at a meeting of that group last week he wants Pluto back in the Planet Club. If ifs and buts were candy and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas. The consensus among astronomers is still out. Sherry Preston, ABC News. Pluto, planet or not? I don't know. But you know what I do know? Is I need a Big Bang Theory laugh track on this show. That's what I need. 